Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Asida, and I'm joined by always by my partner in cybercrime. Dayton Williams. It's great to be here, Jacob. It's great to be here. This week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be having a roundtable discussion. And it's not going to be with one or two guests. No, we've decided to throw caution to the wind and have an entire three guests on, more than we can even support. Right. And we're also at an actual roundtable. So that's true. That's an added bonus. That's also very true. But this week, we're going to be getting a sort of multidisciplinary look at people in the cyber industry, or as you'll hear from themselves, perhaps different views of how they view cybersecurity and tech as a whole. But before we dive into that, let's actually get to know some of our guests this week. To my left here, I have Adam. Adam, would you mind talking a little bit about yourself here? Yeah, my name's Adam. I've been in the tech space for about 10 years. I work with cybersecurity companies to help them sell to the government. We create media capture plans that uses podcasts, video interviews, all these types of things to uh, help put the product in front of the government customer. Excellent. Uh, next we here have Dan. I'm Dan. I'm a emerging technologies consultant, uh, work in a lot of different public sector areas for autonomous vehicles, regulation, uh, public sector applications of blockchain. It's essentially applying tech to public policy. Excellent. And last but not least, we have Quinn here. Hey, I'm Quinn. My background is in literature and philosophy. Um, but I found myself adjacent to tech spaces lately, and I find it super fascinating. So I'm here a little bit as the disciplinary outlier, um, but hopefully that'll create a little bit of viewpoint diversity. Wonderful. Fantastic. We have gathered this group here, this Motley crew from a group meeting here concerning cybersecurity and tech as a whole in DC. And having a brief conversation then over food and drink, we've decided to extend that conversation here. So. Today, we're going to be discussing the nature of identity with regards to technology and eventually its application to security. But before we can even get into that, we unfortunately, as with many things with philosophy, have to dive into defining words. So first off, we're going to have to start with a definition of identity before we can even get into the technical aspects of it, as we will easily see that it becomes quickly dicey. But starting with a concrete definition, or at least a written one, Merriam-Webster has the distinguishing character of a personality of an individual is what defines an identity. And now that's very cut and dry, very boring. We're going to dissect what actually identity can possibly mean. I open the floor now to anyone who has a particular thought on the matter. Yeah, I have a thought on that. Um, did you say that the distinguishing feature of identity is personality? Is that, is that the claim? It was a character or personality of an individual based off of the dictionary definition, yeah. So here's, here's my baseline. Let me just throw this on the table. I think that identity is more social than it is individual. Um, you can like have a person who like has an identity and is really solid about that, but if you start asking them questions about why they are that and why they care about that, real quickly you're going to hear about their relationships and their communities and who they love and what they love um, and who they're serving. And if you take somebody and you take them out of one social context and put them in a different context, they're going to have a different identity, both socially and personally, right? Like the personality is mutable. That thing is not going to survive the phase shift from one community to another, depending on how drastic the leap is. Certainly not. I think it's a very internal oriented definition. I think it completely misses those external factors. That's very apt on that. 
Does anyone else have a particular thought about the definition that 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 is working with and how we might change it? I think it's interesting that it admits a lot of mutability, um, oftentimes, particularly in the public sector or as far as regulating and lawmaking goes, identity is seen as something immutable. Um, that's, you know, an ID is something that will always be the same for a person. But if you frame it in terms of personality and or relationships, those are very fluid. You want to talk about the ship of Theseus? <laughs> I'm we sure do. that's going to be covered so <laughs> many times. We're going to be referring to that. That, that is unquestionably right. going to happen. Before we jump into that, uh, Adam, do you have any particular thoughts we'd like to add on that? Yeah, I think uh, at, the, at the base, everything is relational. Like everything exists out of in relationship to something, right? Like if it if it doesn't um, exist, we wouldn't talk about it. And if we're not talking about it, it's not relation. Like it's not connected to something. So, yeah, I'm with Quinn on this this idea that it is in context to other things versus just um, yeah internally created. Yeah. Certainly, okay. Well, we're going to have that even questioned a little bit further as we make it a little dicier with the introduction of technology where one has the possibility of creating their identity basically from scratch. The optimal ability to have an identity from the from the inside be expressed outward. But I think in general, there I, I don't want to skew the conversation too much. I think you've already hinted at it, Quinn, that your online community that you're a part of might end up defining that particular identity online. So I guess the question we're going to be starting to ask now is, is your identity or identities online the same as your real life identity? Is it an extension of it? Or is it something perhaps completely different that I'm not even articulating properly? Right. I also want to open this with a few qualifiers that can go into an online identity, right? There are several things that you can have in an online identity that you can't have in, I guess we could call it from this point on like a kinetic identity, something that's in the the physical space. Um, and I think one of them is the opportunity to be truly anonymous. And I think being truly anonymous in a lot of different contexts can influence the way you interact with other personalities or individuals or entities online. Um, I think the anonymity is one component, but also there's the physical separation, the not personally seeing someone or being next to someone that can also influence how an identity can interact in the online space versus in a physical space. Mm. That's good. Hey, Dayton. Yes. Do you personally think that your online identity, how, how do you personally think that your online identity relates to your kinetic identity? Well, I, as Jacob was hinting at, I think most people have multiple different online identities, right? Like for instance, if you have a Reddit account and you post certain things on a Reddit account, that's mostly anonymous unless like, you know, someone figures out what your email is and then they could tra trace it from there. Um, your Facebook identity, is very different than how you would portray yourself to your actual friends. Um, same with Instagram, whatever. Uh, different than how you would portray yourself if you are using um, a you know, corporate email that you're doing to represent your company or a blog post. Um, I think in a lot of ways, an online identity can become an extension of your, your personal identity. We've mostly been speaking about kinetic identity in the singular, but I wonder if a typical person one might regard as having more than one of those as well. I think that's a fair criticism of, of the idea. I mean, you've already hinted at that, Quinn, as well, with the idea that you would code switch between different environments and the situations that you'd be in. And I would say 
continuing on with Dayton's point, I would say, you know, there's a degree of truth that you're expressing online with each identity and both how much you're willing to share. You know, you obviously put on somewhat of a creative performance with your Facebook identity, but there is still an Well, I know I do. You certainly do. <laughs> I don't recall you being 7'8", <laughs> but that is what it is listed as. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly there's only certain amounts that you're able to share and want to express online. It's very created. It's, you know, there's a degree of falsity to it. But there's also a truth that you reveal inadvertently with the identity in in expressing certain desires to be seen as a certain way that kind of reveals sort of an internal logging for a degree of an identity. Uh, I've just had this thought and I, and you know, I'm, I'm going to use myself as the example, but I, I think a lot of people, the kinetic identity is driven by fear. And so like, um, and your real identity is actually who you are at your most vulnerable state. So like the fear driven identity makes you do things to be popular. It makes you do things to fit in. It makes you do things to um, make money so that you can feed your family and have a roof over your head and, and like have all the comforts. Right. And so like that identity is the identity that that is created out of like basically like a response to fear. I don't want to be hungry. I don't want to be like I'm like an outcast in society. I want to fit in. I want to do all these things. And then like your your true real identity, like I, I wonder how many people actually know what that is. And and for me, like I've only I'm 36 now, but I've only seen glimpses of it because I've only now come to grips of like the most vulnerable parts of my life. You know, the 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 the, the, the childhood trauma parts of my life or the um, the near death experience parts of my life. Like those glimpses are where you get to actually peek into who you really are. And I think the journey that we're all on is, is, is grappling with that. So I can see you want to jump in. I just want to follow up with that. Do you think that one is more or less vulnerable online? I, I think people, um, I, I, I think as a whole, people are less vulnerable online because they're more exposed online. And so they feel like they have to, like everybody can see this, right? Um, my the people that know me the most and then like all the other people my professional friends everybody and so i think that as a whole people are less likely uh that's why hashtags trend because people all just want to jump in and kind of insulate themselves in the masses so um so, I, I don't think as a whole people are more vulnerable online so paradoxically you're kind of saying you're in the spotlight online. So everything you do is much more sensitive, but because of that, people wrap themselves in more and more cloaks to make themselves less vulnerable. Just by the end, the, the internet as a whole provides a sort of vulnerable space, but the individual themselves is only as vulnerable as they decide to be in that space. So actually quite, it's quite powerful for your expressing your own identity. Mm. Let's, hear, let's hear a differing opinion <laughs> on that, please. I, yeah, I wanna add a layer of language on top of what Adam's saying, which I so agree with and feel. Um, so I want to articulate that around a subject versus object self, where your object self is, you know, the entire set of sort of products on a social and economic market. Um, for example, Adam is quite active on LinkedIn. You've got a great personal brand. Thank you, you post on LinkedIn every day. I try. I'm so impressed by that. <laughs> it's the number one trusted trusted online social media application. Oddly enough, is it really? It is. Oh, that—that's how. Funnily enough, that's how the the Chinese will 
recruit people to flip for them in, in a intelligence basis. Wonderful. Fun fact. <laughs> and at, least like, at least it's honest. Have yeah. you been recruited? To flip <laughs> for the Chinese? Uh, I definitely not. Sorry to interrupt you. Sorry. Please continue. So like I could also have like an object self that was like an anonymous Reddit profile in which I was a 57 year old man living in rural Rwanda. Right. I could do that. Um, and that would be a sort of product that I was selling. It wouldn't have anything much to do with me. Um, but it would be a sort of fictional product, sort of akin to a novel. Um, and then when we're talking about vulnerability, that's more the subject side. So like, if you just sit real still for like seven minutes in a row, like what are you actually thinking? What are you actually feeling? What is actually going on with you? Like what is actually motivating you? Um, and so, you know, vulnerability comes I'm saying this like this is true. I think <laughs> that vulnerability comes from that subjective place, but I don't think it's always vulnerability. I would offer authenticity as an alternative um, where like, you know, it's possible to bring that really sincere, authentic part of yourself and have that be where you're sort of residing and what's driving your actions and also be powerful and secure. Um, and then you're, you're being authentic and then I envy you for your capacity to do that. So we're getting into the territory of, of seeing this sort of vulnerability and authenticity online. I guess we kind of have to ask the question that, well, that we discussed before when we first met, you know, with, uh, with, with regards to your identities online and with technology as a whole, with relation to your identity, would you say that we are cyborgs and we should consider all identities when considering one's identity, even your uh, 58-year-old Rwandan, Rwandan man on Reddit, should we consider that as part of your identity or not? I mean, I think, it ha I think you have to, right? Like, Certainly legally I, you might would be held possibly responsible for actions that you did, but, but do you think it, do you, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to cut across yeah, you, please. Yeah, no, 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 but like when you think of, um, so I, like in, I, everything is relational with me, right? Like, er, er, like everything is just, it's, it has relational components to it. So um, who I am, well, let me just take a step back. It, when we meet out and we say hi and we exchange, like, how are you and all that, and then, like, we see each other out at the game, or then you come over to my house for dinner, like, th there are layers to relationship that deepen that bond and that connection and that trust, right? Like, we met at a networking event, but now I'm sitting here. It's just, like, it, it has gone further. Um, and so I think in, in terms of, like, identity, you can see my uh, identity on my Instagram account, right? And my wife and I, we just cel celebrated 10 years uh, married together, our anniversary. And Mazel tov. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and, and so you see our photos and, and they, every, everything looks fantastic. We're in a vineyard, like I've dressed as best as I possibly can. Like my kids are like, they're just smiling, right? But what you don't see is like 10 years of like fighting for relationship. And that's not something that I would feel comfortable, nor would I put out in that space. Mm -hmm. But when you come over to my house or when you meet us, like you will see the fact that like we're very transparent about like, hey, it's not always easy. It's not always like there are some times where we're going to fight and then we're going to reconcile and we're going to share that. Mm -hmm. I think that's um, a very good word, actually. Transparency. Yeah. In regards to online identity. I think that's a, actually a very good way of framing it. We're more transparent in our sort of kinetic identity, you would say, or yeah. at least in general. Yeah, I, I for me personally, I I, I would I, I have to fight to be more transparent in my online identity. 
Like there's an uncomfortability when I'm like sharing something transparent and I hit the whatever button to publish or to share or to post. Like there's a, should I do this? But if I'm in person with somebody, I can share it. And I know that it's like, it's not captured for eternity. So there's, you know, there's something about right. that, that uh, there's some hesitancy there with mm -hmm. the online. Can I jump in? Please, please. I think a part of what I'm hearing you say is that it is just more difficult to be really authentic in your online persona. And I wonder if a part of that goes back to the physical separation that Dayton mentioned before. Um, we're like, you know, the, the human body is a really profoundly powerful instrument for communication, right? Like this is why theater is so affecting. Um, and like, I think that this is sort of something where like, it's really easy being young and American and inundated with technology to be like, my entire self is in my Twitter account and I say everything that I think and feel. And like, maybe you do, but mm -hmm. like, there is something meaningful about the fact that your body is not present as a part of your message when you do that. Mm. Um, and I'm gonna give just like an example that persuaded me of this point because I realized that it can sound a little bit like, yeah, whatever. Um, so like if you've got 30 gazelles in a field um, and one gazelle hears something that startles them, all 30 gazelles will look like they're on edge. You'll see them all stand up real straight and you know head on a swivel. Uh, and people are like that too, right? Like people are social creatures and even like at the level of your nervous system and your amygdala, what you think and feel and how you understand information is directly impacted by the physical cues of the bodies of people around you. So I think that's an important part of this as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's an, an, another scale to this, which I think there's an amplitude of of people you can affect and people that can be part of that herd of gazelles, so to speak, right? Like how many people can you physically interact with at a given time, right? Like right now there's five of us at this table and I'm swiveling my head back and forth to be able to make contact with everyone here, right? But a single Facebook post or a single LinkedIn post, hundreds of people can see that and it stays permanent, right? I mean, sure, it can be deleted, but more or less it's gonna be on the site for, for the conceivable future. Um, and I think that impacts the way that we express ourselves online as much as um, the authentic authenticity side of it, right? It's the it's the audience. There's an audience component to your it. Commu your, the idea of community is expanded at an exponential rate right. online. And, it's, and I, it's incomprehensible to people. Yeah. Do you think it's be because it's incomprehensible? They don't understand the ramifications, or they don't like qualify them before they do something there could certainly exist the idea that because of just how large it is any action they might not think about it mattering so much just because it's hard to see the impact of it immediately i mean that could be easily demonstrated by somebody making a simple tweet and then it being interpreted one way and then it snowballs into a trending tweet where they're lambasting that person perhaps mm -hmm. but i i would actually uh point of so you have this wide sea of individuality all these people expressing who they are online, authentic or not. The sense of self, I think, is very in question. I feel your identity online, you have to, to really assert yourself. You have to be quite powerful. Your identity has to be very strong in order to really push against the external boundaries. So this is where the, right. those external boundaries you're talking about, Quinn, before, mm -hmm. are really present. Mm -hmm. And you can, of course, self-select into certain communities to reduce those boundaries. You could make it a very niche interest of knitting societies in Senegal that speak French, okay? That could be a specific community that you're in. But on Facebook, 
maybe just in general you're not you're not self-selecting that you have this very huge area of community all these external actors pushing on you and maybe you need to express your identity very strongly maybe mm. it's not even necessarily a quote-unquote true identity maybe you make yourself seem more radical you you want to push back because you feel that you're losing your identity i think that's something we may be underestimating but i, I do want to go a little bit further once once we once we dwell on this topic but i want to push back soon about how important this online identity is as we start removing them. But but, but, but before, mm. before we get to that, what do you think about that? Do you think that people are even more focused on identity online, even if it's fake? Can I ask you a question? Sure, please. Can you identify occasions in your life where you have felt compelled to radicalize what you are presenting online? And if so, please tell us about them. But also, I really am curious about how that breaks down on the sort of subject-object distinction that I drew before. Like, are you, do you feel that that is an effort to make your authentic, vulnerable subject self intelligible to this morass of limited attention? Or do you feel like you're cr like crafting an object an object identity in a social sphere and you're trying to get engagement with it, like what's happening there? That's a great question. I, the, to answer your first one, I will answer it in two ways. One, I will also refer to a kinetic experience. The experience of becoming like an actor is something like that. You know, you're in grade school, you feel awkward, you feel you want to stand out, you want to gain people to recognize your attention. Right, so Jacob dyes his hair purple. For, so I, sorry, I dye my hair purple. Uh, if you didn't know that, I've grown this horrific mustache and I now look like Commissioner Gordon. It's all a desperate <laughs> plea for help. Um, that, this is all true. That, that actually, that second part is, Hard, unfortunately true. Uh, right. In response to the technical state, I think the part is this. I think this this podcast in and of itself is a uh, what cry is the for help? It's a cry for help. But it's, an <laughs> ego, it's an egotistical project to to think that people want to hear my voice to start mm -hmm. and put off a persona as they. Right. I, I began this podcast by saying, "I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman." I'm already performing as it is and mm -hmm. trying to put out an identity that isn't exactly who I am every day that Dayton might know me as, despite the fact that we work together as co-hosts. He knows uh. me better than most people. Uh, but yeah, I, it, I'm already sort of performing there and, and exuding a more powerful identity than I otherwise would. Um, to your subject-object statement, which I wouldn't mind having repeated, but from what I recall, I think you know it, there, there's a degree of like wanting people to accept me in, in that performative space, but I think it's also, to some extent, an unwillingness to express the full truth of me because I don't want the full me to be rejected. But if only a part of me is rejected, perhaps my identity as a whole can sustain that. So by wrapping it up into performant, a performant like mask of the Cyberman, I can come out and I can say things and people might like it. But if they don't like some aspect of it, well, that's not fully me. You don't understand me completely. So I can brush off that and my identity as a whole can sort of remain. So I think it's both kind of subject object work going on there at the same time, both, both protecting, but both also trying to be vulnerable at the same time. What's the reward? Like, what do you want? Why are you doing that? That is a hard question to ask. I mean, I, ideally, the podcast <laughs> goal is to help educate the everyday American on cyber issues. No, what do you want? Yeah, that, Jacob, what do you oh, want? Oh, geez, is this, is, this is just grilling yeah. me. I, I think what I want out of this is, honestly, I enjoy the opportunity to speak with people in the field. I like to talk about society and technology, and honestly... It's very hard to find people willing to do that just randomly on the street, though this is a particular exception, finding you all. Yeah. And Shout out to Cyber Tacos, by the way. Oh, Cyber yeah. Tacos, thank you very yeah. much for this opportunity. Shout out to Cyber Tacos. Um, but yeah, I, to me, it's, uh, it's a selfish desire to want to discuss uh, technology, but not in the hoity-toity, so we need to patch port 404 or whatever. Uh, I want to talk about technology 
in regards to how I view technology, which is I view it as an extension of identity. I view technology as inherently cultural. It's it's technology is people to me. So I want to have that conversation, and I want to lead other people to think that way. So that that is why I have this podcast. That is that, that's how I would describe it. Yeah. Because you spend this time performing, um, so to speak, on this podcast, do you do you find have yourself having more time for your subject self mm -hmm. in the rest of your life? Please tell us yes. a, a story about your mother, Jake. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in my defense, uh, in my defense here, I in, is, is, this is my fault. I invited this. So yeah, that's, that's fair. <laughs> this is good. This, yeah, mean, no, this, is, a, this is a conversation uh, about identity and. Yeah. We talked about how you have to peel layers to actually get to the true identity, and here we are. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, I think it's only know, fair that we go for me because I, vulnerability. For one, you're yeah, doing yeah. it. That's yeah, fair. That's it. fair. And, and the audience is most familiar with me here, so that is totally fine by me. Uh, so to repeat your, what, 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 could you repeat that? I'm sorry, Dan. I think the broader question, and we'll narrow it back down sure. to the one I asked, is because we, if we if our digital identities are more performative mm -hmm. uh, than our kinetic ones, does that leave more time for us to be experiential and to be perhaps more sincere in our everyday lives? I wonder how it flows back down into mm -hmm. physical reality. And I, I don't think there is a break. I think it's a constant switching and changing because we're always connected to it, right? Like, I, I don't know about you guys, but when I wake up in the morning, first thing I do is check my phone, right? And I have my phone in my pocket right now, and I, you know, I'm on it all the time, and it's, a, it's an addiction. It's a social, cultural addiction um, to be connected to those identities all the time. So I, I think, I don't think it frees up more time. I think it makes our lives just a little bit more complicated. I would actually argue in favor that it allows me to express more aspects of my identity than I otherwise would be willing to. Mm. I think there we have underestimated here, we have talked mostly, I think downplayed the importance of internet identity. I think for many people, they're unwilling to express the truth of their identity in the kinetic realm, but right. the internet offers them the ability to express themselves in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be recognized. I, for the most part, have not acted for many years, despite the fact that it characterized me as a person for about eight years. But this podcast allowed me to rebring that into my personality to and in, in fact try to bring it out to more people in general uh so i would say it's it's allowing me to express my identity more so than ever but it's also allowing me to express a degree of a mask of an identity as well so i think there's both truth and lies in, involved into it so but I, it's very hard to differentiate that from your kinetic identity i mean you're kind of, as we've already discussed it's very similar it's both truth and lies in many ways so to me i don't generally make a differentiation between your, your online identity and your personal identity. It's all a matter of, it's all relative and it's all in different degrees, certainly, but I think that they're inherently the same to me. That being said, I'm gonna pose the question that I don't wanna have to answer, um, <laughs> but it's a ship of Theseus problem where you have a ship made up of many wood planks and you are pulling them off one at a time and replacing them with a new plank. After how many uh, planks do you pull off and replace them? Is the ship the same ship? If I eventually tear off every single plank one at a time, replacing them one over one at a time, it could be over the course of days, over years, but eventually the ship is made of entirely new planks. Is it the same ship or is it a different ship? That is the philosophical question that I, as I understand. Comparing that to your online identity, how many of your online identities matter? How many can you pull away and still be the same person? Can you completely disconnect from the online and still be the same person? I don't exactly know the answer to that question, so I'm going to propose it to you, to you all. 
I think, and I mean, I'm, I'm throwing this out there as I, I think, because I'm not the smartest person in the room, which means I'm in the right room. But I, on a cellular level, the human body, uh, cells die and regenerate. Mm -hmm. So when I'm born, I have cells. And when I die, the same body, the same person has a completely new set of cells. So, I mean, to your argument, it's like I am the same person, but also cellularly different on every level. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the, the journey that we're on is a life journey of, of replacing those planks. I mean, if you're not actively removing planks from your life and replacing them with new planks, like you're not growing. And if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I would just welcome like, remove the planks, remove the social media. You know, I, I, when I think of removing the social media, I think of like sitting down and getting to know you versus you just seeing me from LinkedIn posts, you know, it's, um, anyways. So if I turned off the internet tomorrow, just for you personally, everyone else gets it, but not you. And I took away the LinkedIn and all of the other social media. Would you feel that as a loss? And if so, would you feel it as a loss of identity? I, I personally wouldn't feel it as a loss of identity. I would feel it as a loss of community because I'm able to reach and impact um, people and connect with people, like a, like a larger amount of people. Uh, it doesn't necessarily feel like a piece of my identity if you removed it, but it would feel like if you took the LinkedIn, if you, like, if you took my LinkedIn profile away, there are people that I've only connected with on LinkedIn, but when I see them in real life, they're like, Adam! And I'm like, this is incredible. <laughs> You've liked 10 posts and you feel like we actually know each other. Uh, and so if you took that dynamic away, like I would feel a loss because when I saw that person, I wouldn't have that instant connection. Um, I wouldn't necessarily feel that like my identity was removed. It's a good question. I think this is where the backwash becomes important from the digital identity into the kinetic identity to maybe ground this in like a strictly kinetic sense. I have competitive sports leagues like soccer and volleyball that I compete in. And I do regard them as a component of my identity because I think I would be a slightly but distinctly more competitive and perhaps more aggressive person in my everyday life if I didn't have these leagues to compete in and serve as an outlet for that aspect of my identity. And that's why I find them to be so. Whereas to take another, you know, ordinary thing, perhaps like grocery shopping, if I didn't get to grocery shop and instead foods just, you know, appeared in my refrigerator, I don't think that would change my behavior or personality in any meaningful way outside of that context. And that's where I would say that the former example is something those being a competitive person that's where i find that to be a part of my identity being a grocery shopper is not part of my identity i would push back on that a little bit the the interesting thing before we had cars and before we had planes uh people lived in a community and they went to the grocery store and they were able to meet they went to the barber shop and they were able to meet and you had these places where differing political views and differing cultural views and socioeconomic views they could really like collide and come together. Mm. And, um, and, and now like that space in a large part is removed. 
and we have like if you want to be a Green Bay Packers fan like you can go online and just like immerse yourself into like the world of the Green Bay Packers and never see anybody else right or if you want to be a Republican or a Democrat or like if you want to live be a golfer and live in a gated community like you can just move into a gated community and like just surround yourself by people that look like you and vote like you and all these things right Whereas um, I, I think that that grocery store example is very important because as, as we lose those places where we like can kind of spaces. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So I, I think that those spaces can be uh, more formative to personality than, you know, than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, just, ha- have you read uh, Bowling Alone? No, but you're like the second uh, person. It's a really, it's a really that. fantastic book. Um, I don't know. It, it, Bowling Alone is this great book. I believe it's by Robert. Fuller. I don't, I, I, the name escapes me. Google it. Um, bowling alone is about the, these organizations of bowlers in the 1950s in the United States and how everyone, like you ever, you ever seen the Flintstones? Like Fred Flintstone always has like a bowling bag. Like that was very emblematic of the time. Every like man in the, the fifties, let me say white man specifically, uh, middle income white man in the fifties all had, uh, were part of bowling leagues and bowling clubs. And uh, there was analysis to see civic participation. Um, this is like voting. This is being part of a, you know your your school board, being part of anything in your community um, has drastically declined over the over the twentieth century. With the the declining of being part of sewing circles and knitting circles and bowling clubs and whatever it was that you built community around, because you can be engaged with different people and create um, a community, right? And that that declining of community has declined uh, society and changed society in a lot of different ways. Um, that's like the footnotes of the, of the book, but mm. we're, we're straying away from our point though, yeah. um, which is about identity in the online environment. And Quinn has something to say. Um, hey Dan, um, are there any online spaces that are only online for you where you find community? I think there are a few that I would say. Uh, one that I might cite is the esports space, um, mm. which conventionally was strictly online, but now has somewhat interestingly bled back into the physical territory. Esports, like how? Like, what do you mean? Esports, League of Legends in particular. I've oh, played, cool. obviously, and served as a coach for um, assistant coach for a number of collegiate no teams. No way! Awesome. That's so cool. So, hey Dan, I have a question for you. <laughs> this, this game's called Hey Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what is your what is what is the piece of information that identifies you as a unique person inside of League of Legends? You have a unique username. Um, that's one that you can choose, and one the names for which people often choose at a younger age, and then they come to regret. But uh, it's uh-oh. sort Dan, of been Dan. the person you were. Hey, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> this is the part where you get really vulnerable, Dan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I am the Midnight Cobra. Oh, the Midnight yes. Cobra. That is going to be the title of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's some Xbox One gamer tag stuff. That's fun. Uh, but okay, here's my real question about this. So, how old were you when you chose that? Around about 13 or something like that, mm. I suppose. Oh, man. Can you change it? You can change it, but. It would almost f- it would almost feel like you were discarding a part of your history because uh, interesting right. that's cool. But I, I understand that this is how this is a challenge that many people face in professional fields, particularly women, if they get married and 
decide to change their names. You now have all of your things published under multiple names. It's difficult to unify them because what was previously uniquely identifying of you, because we tend to call people by their names, is your name. Right. Name, mm. Naming and naming conventions is such an important part of the creation of identity and separating identities between themselves. That's a component I didn't even think about, right? Your, your Facebook name, your driver's license name, like the, these are incredibly political and socially important things. That was brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing, Midnight Cobra. Thank you. Um, I think leading from this, and we're getting closer to our end point here, how we're going to end up relating this back to security, because we've, we've yeah. been very philosophical, and I love every aspect of mm -hmm. that. Right. But I think ultimately, the to maybe try to close out the question of how closely our digital identities are related to our, our kinetic identities, ultimately, you know, my answer is that if you cut out all of my digital identities, I think I would be a markedly different person in my kinetic life. And for that reason, I do consider it to be an intrinsic part of my identity. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's interesting. I recall what I was going to say now, and it helps <laughs> me lead into it. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I, I would, I would be inclined to agree with you. I think we exist in a time where your ability to control your identity is greater than ever before in the sense, you know, you have things legally, like the right to be forgotten, where you can quite literally delete your identity online. But mm -hmm. as you've already discussed, it allows you to access communities you couldn't otherwise access. Those communities become so powerful sometimes that they actually manifest into real world activism. They might just coagulate into esports. There are so many ways it could actually come about. But at the same time, while you have such autonomy in crafting your identity, you are also incredibly, incredibly more vulnerable. You have, because of how many people are pushing out against you, you can lose track of that identity. They can start describing you in other ways, and you might not actually continue to maintain the narrative about who you are online. And suddenly you can be cast as somebody else. And this is somewhat related to very newsworthy, just in cancel culture in general. It, you know, you have, you have these moments where some, obviously there's a lot of incidents where it's very true. Uh, but, the, but one's identity online could easily be corrupted by other people. And the ultimate corruption, I would say, of your online identity, going back to finally security, mm. is being hacked. We've, I've talked to people who've been hacked before and beyond merely the legal terms of being hacked and the loss of your information, these people have often described it as being incredibly personal, that it is incredibly, they feel violated almost from mm -hmm. being hacked. Right. Identity theft is, is a legal term and it is something that exists obviously uh, uh, that you can understand, but is losing your identity online quite literally a loss of identity? Is it identity theft? Does it even have to be hacked to have your identity be stolen on? What do you guys think? I mean, we finally brought security back into the equation. We've been talking about vulnerability, and so it's natural that we have to eventually talk about how one secures that vulnerability. I think an interesting parallel to draw is the phenomenon of identity theft before the digital age. It was possible, if not, if more difficult to do. And in that respect, it's a challenge that people have grappled with for many centuries. Like there have been notable cases of, um, we're gonna need to edit this part out. Who was the author who? Uh, so for context, um, we're all 
frantically trying to Wikipedia a very specific obscure piece of information that mm. is half remembered. Um, this is a fun fact about human psychology, but uh, y- your brain was not designed to live alone. Your brain was designed to live as a part of a community. And so that's true for how your memory is structured as well. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that a part of a loss when you lose a close relationship is that that person remembered so many things from your life that you don't remember that well. Um, and in fact, there are huge sets of information where it's like, oh, I don't know. I don't remember that. But that person knows. It's that mm-hmm. person's job to remember. Um, and it's sort of like your brains has an external hard drive in the right. brains of people close to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and, like you and, have a shared relational database with another person. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, this believe- has always existed. This is, yeah, this predates yeah. the internet, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I think that this is something that has been shown in studies, but it might just be theoretical that like people remember information differently now because they have that sort of relationship with the internet where they're like, I don't need to know what the answer is. I only am storing that there is or is not an answer to this question mm-hmm. and the like three words that I can use to Google it. But I think that there's like, I think this is true that that's created physical changes in the way that people's brains take in and process information in like the hippocampus or whatever. I completely agree with that. And going back to the argument, which I would say right now that we are cyborgs already, I would say we have been cyborgs for hundreds of years. I would describe the first, uh, another instance such as this, where you have this change in how memory works would be the introduction of writing. And you will, Mm. I'm sure Quinn, where many philosophers decried the use of Socrates in particular, decried the use of writing because it would pervert the message inherently. And it changed how people remembered things. It was all oral tradition beforehand. I would argue that that writing, that bit of technology made us cyborgs in many ways. And likely there's even, since the use of the beginning, the use of a tool has made us cyborgs. Have we always been cyborgs? Maybe the word means nothing, ultimately, (laughs) as is often the case. But we were, we were talking about um, identity and being able to shed your identity or to take someone's identity or to yes. you know uh, mess with someone's identity in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure we've all had some kind of experience where you've, you know, at least in the early days of Facebook where you would leave your computer open and your younger brother or sister would go up on the computer and write something embarrassing on your Facebook wall and post it. I'm definitely not projecting here. Um, <laughs> there's something... Is this childhood drama? <laughs> Let me think back. Um, No, so I think there's something about um, this this instance of yourself where unlike unlike the way you dress or unlike the way um, unlike the way you you project yourself to people in the everyday, there is actually a a sequence of code or a sequence of of numeric alphanumeric um, an alphanumeric password where you can access the 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 means by which someone does project themselves right like if i knew your if i had access to your phone and i knew your password um and you know depending on what kind of two-factor authentication you have maybe i also have like a scan of your thumbprint whatever for the sake of argument um i have access to your your facebook account um there's an amount of power that comes from having someone's account you have all of their previous messages all of their you know their their reach and their ability of people that they know um bad actors can can use this and it's been used in, in a lot of different terrible ways over these last few years um losing that bit of identity and, and losing the security and that comes with it it's quite literally why in the legal term uh container laws don't apply to your phone so if you're stopped in a car and you are you know detained they 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 want access to who's they 
oh, the police are asking for yeah. access to you, to you, your car. You know, they can go and they search it. They can open any container. You have like a cigarette case or, you know, something for cigarettes. They can open that and they can check that. But they can't force you to open your phone because it's like lugging around every single file cabinet that you have. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you bring that up. Right. I just wanted to point that out, the comparison. Yeah, people should know that. Yeah, people should know that. <laughs> they can't <laughs> compel you to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and similarly, um, you can't be forced to give up a password. Right, because that would be self self incrimination. But you can but be you, compelled to do it if it's a but fingerprint. You can be compelled to do it if it's a fingerprint. So someone can force your hand onto a, a thumb scanner, but they can't force you to to give a password. Yeah. So what's so what's your real identity? Police could force my thumb to my phone and open it. Yes. What's Even if I say no. Yeah. Yes. What's the legally difference? You don't own your fingerprint. But Isn't that a question about identity? You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. see, this is the That's unfortunate the reality. We, I know. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we are running at uh, 50 minutes here, which is Ooh. great. I mean, with many philosophical questions, we often end up yeah. with more questions than answers here. Right. But I, I'm glad that we were actually able to surprise you all with a couple facts about how <laughs> identity and technology works, which mm-hmm. is fun for us. Yeah. You can only imagine the everyday person who doesn't have any philosophical background in it or the technical background having to listen to this, this could all be quite shocking, in fact. (laughs) So I think it's time we start wrapping it up with a couple of closing remarks. Uh, I'll open the floor to anyone who wants to speak now. Can I offer a spicy take? I love spicy takes. Spicier the better. Spicy take, just as identity is inherently social, the consequences of online identity corruption are inherently social. So like, your brother writes some nasty shit on Mm -hmm. your Facebook, can I swear? Please. Like, what's the social, like, what's the consequences of that? Like, Mm -hmm. why do you care? Like, it's a little bit annoying, but people are going to see that. That's going to affect your relationships, whether that's relationships Mm -hmm. with people who you only know online or your actual kinetic IRL, like, your mom is in the next room and she's going to see that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that even applies to the, you know, the phone and the legal context where the consequences, if I have something incriminating on my phone are not online consequences. Those are IRL relational consequences that's going to affect how people see me and what comes up when you Google me and uh, where I'm going to spend my time potentially or the, the degree of freedom that I'm going to have over my life. All of which are, I mean, physical, but also really deeply, deeply social. Um, and this is a little bit extra, but, you know, I have a friend who has the same name as a pedophile. And when you Google it, there's like there's like 30 different people with this name you can find on the internet. But the first one to pop up is a pedophile. And the pedophile lives in a different country and is a different age bracket, so it's fine. But like, you know, that's not even a part of the social media that you own. Mm-hmm. That's just completely incidental, and it's still a threat. Right, right. And I think going back to the naming thing we had earlier, it's very common for people who have the same name as as um, terrorists on and being denied being able to fly because they're on the terrorist watch list. That also happens very frequently. Yeah, and so you know, with the security, there's sort of like a like a primary key problem. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what even is the primary key of your online identity for which you are accountable? Right. I think many of these case examples provide support for. Um, a notion of just a unique identity, a unique digital identity um, that allows people to disambiguate themselves from the swirling mass of humanity, some of whom might have the same name and birthday as them. Like a social security number, but public? 
social security number, but public. Um, the dystopian example would be a barcode tattooed on your arm. Ooh. But it does seem like it would help a few people. <laughs> I Have guess, I guess. It's certainly a proposed solution to fake news online, attaching it to an authenticated real-life person. But right. as, yes, it, it opens much can of worms. We've talked briefly about this in the past, so I won't dwell on it now. But yes, that is definitely an interesting aspect of it. Go ahead. Uh, here's my last word. Uh, there are two wolves. One wolf is hope, and one wolf is despair. Who wins? It's the one you feed. Yes. <laughs> the, 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 one with, the one with sharper teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Bad. Do you want to deliver that punchline? You can also deliver that. No, punchline. I just wanted to throw that out there. It's on my mind. No, it's good. I think the uh, funny aspect of that is how each of us interprets it differently. You answered correctly. I think with the, the end of like that, you know, quote unquote proverb, whatever you want to say, would actually be Dayton makes a bad joke. But all I'm thinking about is the bad memes about the two wolves living inside of you that I see online. <laughs> that says anything about how, how our experiences here differ tremendously and how, as you can see, we all we have kind of conflicting views at times. I think we have come to agreement on many things, but this is sort of a, a topic that it unfortunately exists that there hasn't exactly become a consensus on yet. So, you know, it's fun for us to uh, dwell into an area that we're, we're quite ambiguous about ourselves. Usually we try to shine light on the ambiguity of technology, but here we can only shine that we're just unclear about it as you are. But we're, but we're, we're, we're more unclear about it. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Decrypted. Be sure to follow us on social media and look out for the next episode. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCorps program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.